You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right, today I am joined by recurring guest, Beth Fields, occupational therapist, health services researcher, and assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin. Beth, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Always good to catch up with a recurring guest. You run the Fields Lab at UW-Madison, also known as the Geriatric Health Services Research Lab, which engages in research that examines the quality, access, and outcomes of caregivers across the continuum of care. I just want to jump right in. We want to talk about some of your research recommendations you have for students, practitioners across the span of their careers. Uh, What would you say is really the mission and vision of the research you're conducting in your lab? Yeah, great question to kick us off. So the mission of my lab is really uh, twofold. So we develop and uh, deploy cutting edge science to increase, as you mentioned, the quality access and outcomes specifically of patient and family-centric care approaches across the hospital and home care transition. And then we also, through our work, engage diverse uh, stakeholder groups in conversation about solutions for aging and caregiving challenges and necessary changes. So ultimately, through our work and all the other great geriatric health services and caregiving research going on, our society will become more physically, socially, emotionally, and financially supportive of aging adults and their family member and friend care partners. That is just such a wonderful goal to hear it summed up like that. Um, what, what motivated you to pursue this path in your research and, and scholarly work and really develop programs that are related to the health and well-being of older adults and their caregivers? My personal observations of uh, care for various family members um, really has informed my professional research and practice. Unfortunately, most of my observations haven't been the most positive and really, I think, shed light on the need to make things better for aging adults and their identified care partners. One specific example that comes to my mind is my older brother. And I've shared this story with with students, um, colleagues, and other practitioners that I've worked with. But my brother was hospitalized for congestive heart failure complications and um, quickly was intubated. My family at that time was totally left in the dark and just unprepared to really help him make the necessary healthy lifestyle changes he would have to do once discharged. And there was an obvious disconnect between what was being shared with my brother while he was hospitalized and family and what was realistic to do, but also supported to do. So that has really driven much of my program of research. Thank you for sharing that. I think most people who have uh, similar personal experiences or have made similar observations it can be a really stressful time and the time where you really almost feel helpless in wanting to help this person who's so near and and dear to to your heart. And I think it's wonderful that 
you've researched how OT can help with that transition um, and begin to lead to, to better outcomes and better support um, in the environment and at home after, um, you know, these difficult things occur in life. Yeah, that's the goal. There's always room for uh, continuous quality improvement. I love that. How, Beth, how would you describe occupational therapy's role in the prevention, treatment, education, and rehabilitation of adults and their caregivers? So as occupational therapists, and um, I know people that listen to this podcast are familiar with our profession, but we all know that we're uniquely trained to evaluate how the person, environment, and their desired occupation um, come together to really impact their performance. And this evaluation process helps us then determine how we can best support older adults and their care partners in the things that they not only need to do, but want to do. And when it comes specifically to older adults and their care partners, I think we need to be specially tuned into their backgrounds, habits, and routines, and preferences for care. They've lived a whole life full of um, diverse experiences that can really shape their care journey. And as occupational practitioners, I think for this population, we just need to listen carefully, give choices, and really emphasize independence, safety, and comfort throughout our geriatric services. I love that. Emphasizing independence, safety, and comfort, um, such huge categories of performance and, and safety and, and overall well-being. Um, I want to ask, as we're setting the stage for uh, our, our conversation and, and for you to share some of your research today, um, what would you say is the difference between a care partner and a caregiver? And when really should uh, people be using each term and, and why? Yeah, great question. Um, so within the caregiving literature, especially for the geriatric or older adult populations, um, people use different terms and there's no right or wrong way to um, address. I think it comes down to what do people prefer so within our North American healthcare system, generally within hospital settings that I've worked with specifically, they tend to use the term family caregiver. And family is uh, typically um, conceptualized very broadly. So it can include a spouse, um, a partner, a neighbor, whoever that admitted patient identifies as their person. Um, so again, it goes back to giving the older adult the choice and how the older adult identifies their person. I tend to use care partner because I, I often think about caregiving as an activity that you partner with an older adult to complete. Um, however, I do recognize that some chronic conditions like dementia, as the dementia progresses, family members or friends that are fulfilling caregiving responsibilities become more, they assume more caregiving roles as it progresses. So you may start out identifying as a partner in the caregiving task, but then eventually you move towards becoming more of the actual giver of the care where the individual is less able to do for themselves. So I think um, as far as terms, I usually ask what people prefer or what they're familiar with and go from there. I love that. I think that's a a great guideline um, to approach really using any type of term um, mm -hmm. 
and it's a uh, very person centered. When we do use uh, the terms caregiver or care partner um, within your research, is that going to include um, paid caregivers as well? Great, great question. So generally, my work focuses on those that do not receive compensation. However, you know, how how we define compensation can vary. So, you know, I might include a family member who's providing care to their loved one with some form of dementia in a research study, and they're receiving some tax benefit, for example. That could be considered compensation um, and put them in a paid caregiving category. But I think in the literature, generally, paid caregivers tend to be, tends to refer to those of like personal care assistance, those that are working for, you know, various types of organizations where they're employed. Thank you for that clarification as well. Um, I, I work in outpatient pediatrics and, and work closely with families, but also we see, um, you know, personal care attendants as well. And um, the collaboration with someone outside of a family circle does look different. So I want to make sure we're covering all our bases in, in the recommendations we give to, to listeners. Beth, what would you say are really some of the challenges of providing occupational therapy to older adults and using interventions to support caregivers and care partners? So some of the challenges I faced when I was practicing in home health really related to readiness for change and the individual's level of independence and needed or desired level of support. So because older adults have lived a longer life, many can be set in their way, so to speak, and there can be a denial or poor awareness for various needed supports. So to overcome some of these challenges, I think as a profession, we really need to be prepared to have difficult conversations and think big, but be okay with starting small when it comes to care planning and what goals we're collaboratively setting with our older adult clients and any involved family or friend supports. I love that focus. You know, I think we all can work with uh, clients and patients that seem stubborn and, and as you said, very set in their ways and specific. Uh, but again, I love the term care partner and think it, it, it benefits practitioners to view themselves as partners as well and a partnership and, and collaborating to find, you know, the best interventions and uh, best modifications that, that can work in any, any given circumstance. I want to discuss some of the implications of your research projects that are ongoing. Uh, it seems, like you mentioned, a lot of your studies focus on and test um, assessments, toolkits, and programs uh, related to health outcomes after hospital discharge. What would you say are some decision support tools that practitioners could use to enhance caregiving preparedness to improve health outcomes after a hospital or skilled nursing facility discharge? Yeah, so decision support tools um, help patients and their care providers, as well as their family members or friends, participate in decision making about healthcare options. They utilize commonly utilize structured guidance to really help encourage honest communication about various treatment and education op- options. Um, as well as provide opportunities for the patients and care partners to identify and articulate 
again, coming back to their values and preferences. So as occupational therapists, we're really good at conducting an occupational profile um, assessment. So really getting at some of those uh, key elements of our profession. And I think decision support tools should really be available at every important decision point throughout the care continuum, especially at hospital admission and discharge for whatever disposition they're going to next. Let that be home or um, like some intense rehab facility or a skilled nursing facility. So one decision support tool that my lab and our team have created is called the Care Partner Hospital Assessment Tool. And we developed that tool um, based on caregiving and geriatric health services research expert opinions. Um, And then we also did some validation testing where we asked care partners of recently hospitalized older adults their opinions of the tool and whether they thought the care partner hospital assessment tool, which I referred to as the chat, can improve their preparedness for caregiving. Um, So that tool right now is actually being adapted specifically for hospital-based dementia care. So our team is currently conducting co-design sessions. Um, One session is with clinicians from various disciplines within the hospital setting. And then another session involves previously hospitalized patients living with some form of dementia and their identified um, care partner. And with those co-design sessions, we're really letting them tell us their experiences um, with dementia hospital-based care and then presenting our original tool, the chat, and having them provide feedback on whether or not they think it could be utilized specifically with that population. If it can be utilized, does anything need to change? Our research team then makes changes, and it's this iterative process where we go back and forth and then swap ideas between the clinician group and the the patient and care partner group. So it's it's a very fun approach. Um, it's really informative. And I think anything that's really driven by the stakeholder end user of the process is going to be, in the end, more valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I love your process, too. It sounds so collaborative and um, just a, a continuing process to improve the measure and improve the the chat. We're going to link your lab's website where uh, listeners can find more information on, on each of these studies. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Um, But I have a follow-up about the chat. How is this measure used? Is it integrated with a medical record system? Is it kind of a questionnaire format or survey format with participants? 
Um, could you tell us more about how a practitioner might use the chat in a hospital setting? Within one of the publications that we have, we actually provide an example workflow that was developed in collaboration with, you know, one of our academic medical systems here in Wisconsin. Um, so that's just one example of how the chat could be integrated into care. You know, each system is going to have their own approach to what care partner involvement should look like. Um, so we can only make recommendations, partner with different systems, test them and see what works best and go from there. Um, but I think it's always helpful to work off an example. So I'm happy to share that. As far as what we've done, I mean, the ultimate goal is to, yes, get it into, you know, electronic health record portal like Epic or Cerner or the other um, large vendors. Um, but right now we're not there yet. So as of right now, the systems that have implemented chat, it is given to care partners that the patient identifies on admission as soon as possible. And it's paper and pencil based. There's three main sections for the original tool. Again, right now we're in the process of adapting it for dementia. So it may um, look a little bit different for after for that population. But in general, our first iteration, it was designed for, you know, all types of care partners of aging adults that are hospitalized. So with the original chat, there's three sections. The first one really gets at identifying who is the right care partner to be involved in the care. That is, is it the adult child? Is it a neighbor? Is it a spouse? Because we know not every person that's there on admission is the person who's going to be responsible for helping that older adult once they're back home, for example, because they may not have the schedule availability, they may not have the strength if it's, a, if it's an older adult spouse, for example. Um, so there's lots of factors that can contribute who is the right person that should be filling out the chat. So with the first section, it's all about identifying that person or persons. And then the second section is about that person's preferences for care. Do they want to have access to the patient's electronic health record you know, if given permission to do so by the patient? Do they want to be present when education is being delivered to the patient? What levels of caregiving support do they provide? Is it more physical, hands-on? Is it just financial? Is it emotional? Etc. So that section is all focused on preferences. And then the last section really refers to the skills and supports a person, a care partner may need um, so that they feel prepared to um, complete whatever caregiving responsibilities they will do once the patient is discharged. So this section really acts as a screening where, you know, the care partner checks off, yes, they need help with this or no, they don't. And then based on their response, it triggers a consult to a specific provider type. So I'll give one example. You know, there's an item specifically focused on home modifications and setting up the environment. So if they're not sure if they're going to have to help their family member or friend after they get home change their environment so that they can move around safely and independently, they would check yes to that box and then they would get a referral to 
occupational therapy as one example. And this tool was um, designed to be very brief because we all know that hospital care is very fast paced um, and lengths of stay are getting shorter and shorter. The entire chat is 19, 19 questions and can be completed within a few moments. And once the chat is completed by the care partner, then they are instructed to give it back to you know, the charge nurse or whoever is the main person on the unit. And then that team communicates out the results to the patient's healthcare, healthcare team. Wow. Thank you. The chat, it sounds wonderful. And everything that the chat does to help identify the correct care partners, um, identify preferences for care, and then identify skills and supports that, that are needed um, to support, you know, carryover and, and continued well-being after discharge. All of that just sounds like, you know, the crux of occupational therapy, the crux of, of client-centered care. Um, and it, it's wonderful to hear about a tool um, that can help practitioners really implement OT best practices um, in, in working with this population and, and being client-centered in that way. Um, what, what are some principles or recommendations that, that you would give to practitioners uh, for them to help prepare clients for discharge from the hospital or skilled nursing facility and encourage that sustained improvement um, and, and ensuring that they have those skills and supports that are needed? I know that this is easier said than done, but start the planning as early as possible in the hospital setting and involve family members and friends in conversation. Um, So I often see discharge conversations happen the very last hour or two of the very last day of a patient's hospital stay. Um, So I think tools like the chat, um, which again is designed to better understand caregiving context and the need for skills and training and support can really help start the conversation earlier on in the hospital stay and ensure that these care partners that provide the lion's share of care at home really feel ready to help their family member or friend um, stay home once they get there. Because we know that hospital readmissions and emergency department visits are very, very, very costly to our system. So the more that we can do to not only prepare patients and their families or friends, the better we'll all be. I love that. I love that. It's not just what's best for an individual client and, and their family, but it's what's best for the whole health system. That's a, a really cool focus um, and amazing to see uh, kind of the impact that occupational therapy practitioners in particular can have on the medical system overall. Beth, could you share maybe a case study, a personal example of how you would approach this process of identifying the correct care partners, using a a tool or screen to assess their needs and preparedness, and then implement that method for, um, you know, training or support to meet the caregiving demands? So each situation is going to be very different based on the system you're working in, the setting, or the support context of the patient or client. But I'll go back to my brother's story and share what I would have liked to have happened. Um, So more specifically, my brother was admitted for leg edema and fluid quickly reached his lungs, which interfered with his breathing. He was then intubated and moved to intensive care. And while all this was happening, a social worker or some other designated care coordinator or healthcare provider 
I think, could have looked up in my brother's electronic health record um, to see who his primary contact or power of attorney was. And for my brother's case, it was my mom, and let her know what was happening because she wasn't there when he was admitted. Then my mom would have arrived at the hospital, and upon her arrival, she would have received an explanation about reason for admission as well as prognosis and then have been asked to complete the chat. The chat would have then been reviewed by my brother's healthcare team to make sure my mom's preferences for care and skills and support needs were addressed before discharge by relevant provider types. And whatever education would have been delivered by providers should have come in multiple formats based on my mom's preference and health um, literacy level. So all of those steps need to be documented and have a place in electronic health records. That way, if a care partner has access to records, you know, if the patient or client approves that they do, they can then look back at information as needed um, once they're back home um, and out of the hospital so that they have more information to refer to. Let that be written materials, videos, um, whatever, whatever their preference for education and learning is. Thank you. This is, you know, such a, a personal example. And it's, it's really interesting to see how the chat could be used to really improve all these aspects of care and, and this whole, you know, kind of decision tree that occurs when someone um, is admitted to the hospital. Um, what would you say is really, you know, stopping the chat or, or similar assessments from being used um, automatically or, or all the time when someone uh, is admitted to the hospital? And there is a literature that shows there's this 17-year research to practice gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gap comes from a variety of things. You know, I think a lot of times research isn't necessarily designed for end users um, and involving the right stakeholder groups that will be utilizing them to really understand what is feasible in practice. Um, the chat is not, we, we purposely design chat with input from different groups of individuals um, so that it could be translated to practice more rapidly. However, you know, a lot of healthcare systems to invest in new tools, workflows, um, technologies, they need to see the evidence behind it before they, they just jump right in. Um, So I think a lot of times, and in the chats um, case, we first have to go through, you know, the pipeline of research and really show that this type of tool is making a difference in healthcare. Our primary outcome of interest is caregiving preparedness. Ultimately, we would also like to show that the chat does decrease healthcare utilization um, outcomes as well, like readmission, Um, numbers, emergency department numbers, um, but we're just not quite there yet in in the research process, but that's ultimately the goal. And I think once we do show, and hopefully we do, that tools like the chat do increase these outcomes of interest to healthcare systems, then they will be taken up um, and scaled up widely. That is encouraging and that, you know, emphasizes the importance of all the research and work um, you're doing in uh, the, the fields lab there at, at Wisconsin. 
what what additional tools to assess the needs would you recommend practitioners uh, begin to implement into into their day to day practice? So I think it depends on um, a lot of different factors. I, you know, the setting you're working in, the population you're working in, and the research behind it. So practitioners, if you're practicing at the top of your license and delivering evidence-based care, you're really looking for tools that have uh, strong reliability and validity with the particular population has that you're working with, has clinical utility, and it's feasible within the setting or system you're in. So there's a bunch of different factors that go into the decision-making of what, what tool you should utilize. As far as resources that practitioners should, should really integrate, it really comes back to knowing your local community and, that you're practicing in. So when I'm working with care partners uh, in the home and community-based setting, I often encountered questions about what can I access? Um, so be ready as a practitioner to share, you know, during your more informal assessment and just conversation and getting to know the client and or their family member or friend that you're working with, know what they are eligible for based on their socioeconomic status, their documented diagnosis, et cetera, um, because each state and local community is so different. So as practitioners, it's really on us to learn about the organizations and agencies that we can refer people to if we can't offer specific services that they need based on their their prioritized goals. Absolutely. I think it's, or at least it should be kind of universally known within occupational therapy, how important community resources can be in in supporting um, clients and their caregivers and entire families. But as you mentioned, every single community is unique and has different availability and um, accessibility to these types of resources. Um, What are some examples of community health interventions uh, that you've seen be effective in supporting older adults? So one that comes to mind based on a study that I'm co-leading with the incredibly knowledgeable Dr. Pam Toto from the University of Pittsburgh is the Community Aging in Place Advancing Better Living for Elders program, which is a mouthful, but it's commonly known as CAPABLE. And CAPABLE is a program that was developed by clinician researchers at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. And it has a 12-year track record with demonstrated effectiveness in improving function to help older adults age in their community. And right now it's being offered in over 40 organizations across our country. And CAPABLE, it's an interdisciplinary program that involves occupational therapy, nursing, as well as a local handiworker to help make home modifications based on the occupational therapist's um, observations of the home environment and conversations with the older adult client. So that's one example of a community health intervention um, that has uh, a really great track record. I love that. I love that. And and capable, that's also linked on your website. Again, I want to make sure all these resources are available to our listeners. How would you recommend a practitioner really begin to increase their scope and capacity to, you know, find capable or a similar existing community health program for their patients if they're not aware of one? Yeah. So going back to knowing your local community resources, 
figure out what programming is available through your area agency on aging, commonly known as a AAA, or State Department of Health Services. And then I think practitioners, we really should create a resource toolbox for ourselves based on the common populations that you work with within your setting. So look up senior centers, health and wellness clinics, and be sure to explore who has access to them and why, because not everyone has the same insurance or the same eligibility criteria. So I think it can be pretty devastating if you make a a suggestion or referral to a specific program and then the family or the older adult goes to pursue it and then find out that they can't actually take advantage of it for whatever the reason be. So make sure you do your homework first as part of the care planning and approach to delivering whatever service you're going to be working with them for. And if there aren't any available, um, you know, services or programs in your area, try figuring out why. Is it because of lack of financial resources or is it a community preference or priority to focus on something else? As OTs, we really should be advocating for more money to be spent in certain areas within our state budgets during events like Capitol Hill Day. And you can also see if there's an organization or agency somewhat nearby you that may be interested in doing a small pilot program with you. Because if you go down that pathway, you can start to create value proposition statements with the organization and figure out what the organization is going to get out of the partnership in addition to you. Maybe that's demonstrating that a certain pilot program is favorably impacting some outcome of interest that you can then take to different types of payers to get funding and make that resource available for the people you are working with. I love that. That is uh, such a, a wonderful kind of outline for how practitioners can increase their scope and, and, and search out and, and partner with um, some of these existing um, agencies to, to really improve overall health outcomes, which is, you know, the goal all of us are, are striving to achieve as occupational therapy providers. Uh, but as you mentioned, it, it does take some effort and it might take some advocacy. Um, what, what are kind of some other skills or, or tips um, you would give to practitioners who are looking to increase their scope in this way? How can they better prepare themselves to make these partnerships? You know, one thing that comes to mind is just knowing what your value is and what what you can add to a team. I always like to think about what I bring to the table before initiating a conversation and then also doing the homework ahead of time. So know like the organization's mission and value statements, who the people are, what their priorities are for their programs and services. So that way, the first interaction you have with that organization, you go into really as more of a conversation, a two-way conversation. Well, while you're learning about them, they're learning about you, and you can really assess, you know, what are the different skills that the two, two groups bring to the table to see if this is a, a worthwhile partnership moving forward. I never like to go into a conversation 
with like an ask in mind um, right off the bat. I think it takes time to develop these relationships with community organizations and agencies for the the people that they're serving to really um, have an impact on. So be willing to put in the work um, because the long-term outcome is going to be beneficial, not just for you as a practitioner, but um, for the organization and the larger community that they're working with. I love that. Thank you so much. And it, it, it's so inspiring, you know, as an OT provider, you can feel confident in knowing that this is a profession that helps people not go back to the hospital. Um, it's, you know, there's evidence that supports that. Um, but if we are not aware of that evidence, it makes it a lot more difficult to find these partnerships, create these partnerships and end up improving, you know, health outcomes for so many more people um, and improving that impact. Um, could you share, you know, any success stories or personal experiences? Um, you've already mentioned Capable, maybe telling us more about that and, and how it really highlights the positive impact of community gaining in, in place programs or interventions. Sure thing. I love talking success stories. So one of our capable participants expressed fear of falling and as a result was pretty sedentary in their home environment. Through active problem solving and some more basic environmental adaptations with the older adult participant, our team was able to help them reduce their risk of falls. So in particular, we help them adjust their bed and couch height, get some hallway light, night lights installed. Um, we added treads to stairs and grab bars to their bathroom. And then um, this particular participant that I'm thinking about had a precious fur baby. Um, and they always had their, their um, dog on the leash while in the house. So just talking through the safety risk with having the leash on their dog while in the house was also one way to help um, reduce fall risk. So that was one success story that our team recently highlighted with our area agency on aging that we're partnering with to implement Capable in the Pittsburgh area. And, you know, it wasn't a very costly program for that particular participant. Um, but it was more helping the older adult see a problem in their own environment, identify it, and talk through some of the solutions with the occupational therapist that really had, I think, the biggest impact on the individual. I love that. That really is a, an awesome story, an awesome success story. I also don't think I'll be referring to dogs as anything other than precious fur babies um, from now on. Those, so. those were the participants' words. <laughs> I love that. I also have a fur baby at home. Okay. <laughs> we've, you know, discussed the chat. We've discussed Capable. We've seen um, some sneak peeks into successes that can be achieved from using these types of tools. Um, are there any other types of tools or assessments um, that you're studying in your lab that you'd like to um, bring up and discuss right now? So I think the other tool that I'd like to just briefly share and some of my graduate occupational therapy doctoral students presented this at AOTA this past spring and hope we'll present more um, next year, but the augmented 
Reality Home Assessment Tool is another project that I'm working closely on with collaborators in architect and design, as well as uh, health information and technology. So my colleagues and I are partnering together to create this mobile-based app that um, will hopefully soon be readily available to um, different end users, but we are just about finishing up the testing phase of it and going to be publishing that work soon. But the main idea of this mobile-based app is that it uses the augmented reality within your, your smartphone, like the iPhone, to measure the home environment. So generally as OTs, when we're assessing the home environment, we often manually complete measurements, take pictures, scan the environment, watch individuals' performance of different tasks. This mobile-based app, it has four different measurement tools embedded in it and allows like an older adult, for example, to download the app, use it to scan their environment. And as they're going into each space of their home and measuring like the door width or the slope of a ramp or whatever, the light within your kitchen or light within your bathroom, um, all of that information gets saved and it tells you within the app whether or not that's ADA compliant and also maps it on using the housing enabler framework, which is um, a widely acceptable framework um, for home, home modification and environments. So it spits out a report at the end, which then can be shared with occupational therapists to make recommendations for certain home modifications can be shared with a contractor or some other provider type that has the knowledge and skill base to be able to say, hey, your lighting wasn't um, the right illumination and it's really dim, which we wouldn't recommend. So you might want to consider making a modification and adding night lights to your hallway to prevent falls from happening as one example. So that's a really cool tool that our team is in the process of developing and testing. Yeah, my mind is is blown. That sounds like such an amazing app. It, it sounds so useful, so practical, um, and so creative uh, to apply, you know, kind of the OT lens and, and OT expertise uh, to something that anyone can use on their phone uh, to lead to home modifications, um, increase safety, increase ability to participate in you know, those occupations that really give meaning to a person. So, so how could our listeners, how could practitioners kind of follow uh, the, the progress of this app and that study? Where can they uh, go to, to read some more about that research? Yeah, so I'm happy to share. We just had one, pu our first publication that kind of describes the design of the mobile-based app as well as the first phase of testing where, again, this tool was designed with end-user feedback from the very beginning. So that publication is going to come out here very soon. So I'm happy to share that with you, Matt, um, so that the listeners have access to it. I also um, would encourage everyone, I try my best to keep our lab website updated with links to various newsletters, media, press releases, publications, etc. So I think checking into my lab's website is another great way to stay up to date. And then of course, um, anyone can reach out to me 
I'm happy to share my email and my phone number. So if there's any specific questions that listeners have related to any of the different types of projects we have going on or where we're at with those projects and access to, you know, end or end goals or products, I'm happy to provide that information. Thank you, Beth. That really kind of bolsters the the evidence toolbox and, and resources that uh, our listeners uh, can can access. In, any other tips or recommendations for staying up to date with the latest research and evidence-based practices for aging adults and their care partners? Yeah, there's so many different ways that you can stay up to date. Uh, as an AOTA member, you can read articles from the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, look into other great journals like OTJR, the Canadian Journal of Occupational Therapy, or the Journal of Occupational Science, listen to podcasts like this one, follow experts, as well as reputable organizations on social media platforms. So I get a lot of the um, latest and greatest headlines of different news and research pieces um, on Twitter. And then from there, I dig a little bit deeper and get access to, you know, a specific article if needed. You can also, you know, reach out to researchers, reach out to other practitioners in like the space that you know you're wanting to work in or are working in and start developing those collaborative partnerships. I think it's important that we all come together to really help advance what healthcare looks like, um, not only for our patients and their families and friends, but also the system as a whole and us as the practitioners too. So I think just figure out the way you like to learn um, and go from there. I love that. I love that. So much can come from some quality introspection. That's a great advice and some great uh, strategies and recommendations, Beth. What, what are you really hoping that occupational therapy providers begin to implement based on the findings of your research that you've shared with us today? From my personal research um, and the studies that we've recently completed and have started to launch, I think it goes back to, you know, the core of assessment and OT, just having conversations, developing rapport, thinking about what questions you're asking when you're completing an occupational profile for whoever you're working with. And figuring out, you know, from my work, much of it is caregiving focus. So figuring out their support network of the client or patient and really let that information drive your next step for education and resource sharing. So, you know, if your system or setting that you're working in doesn't have a structured template that asks some of those types of questions, think about integrating them at the next conversation or evaluation you have. Um, and see how it feels and don't be afraid to adapt your practice and take time to think about how you can be not only patient-centered, but patient and family-centered. And then I think this, the other two points I just want to leave um, people with is that it's really important that we assess readiness for change to also inform our action plans um, because not everyone is going to be able to take the same advice, um, caregiving, in particular, there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. So just like we tailor and personalize our care for clients and patients, we also need to do that for the family members and friends 
that have the availability and desire to be a part of, of the care process. So assess readiness for change for both the person and whoever the identified support or care partner is um, in that, in your patient or client's plan. Thank you, Beth. Those are such wonderful recommendations. Um, I always leave our conversations feeling educated and, and inspired um, to improve my practice and, and begin to implement some of these strategies. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us today. I can't let you leave without participating once again in our Golden Nugget segment. Um, we've already heard so much quality research and implications of that research uh, that can uh, be applied to what our listeners do on a day-to-day basis. But if you could tell OT practitioners just one thing, Beth, what would it be? Yeah, to me, this is easy. Deliver care the way you would want to receive care. The golden rule. And I think for caregiving in particular, uh, Rosalind Carter really said it best. Um, She shared, there's only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. So the next time you're going to practice with an older adult and treat that, evaluate and treat them, just make sure you're asking the questions and delivering care in a way that you would want to receive the care. I love that. Thank you so much, Beth. Um, it's been such a pleasure catching up with you um, and hearing about your lab and all of this wonderful research, evidence, tools, um, and supports uh, that you're working on developing and disseminating. So thank you again so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was it was fun. Absolutely. We'll have to do it again. Sounds good. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.